KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. It's something nobody can ever take away. You you won a world championship. No matter what, you get defined by that. The thing that people ask me the most is they ask about that year. Not about playing 10 years in the big leagues. It's either that World Series or what was it like catching Randy Johnson? That's, that's like the two things that people ask. What was it like catching Randy Johnson, by the way? <laughs> and our guest this week is Chris Widger, Pennsville, New Jersey native, who went on to have a... 10-year Major League Baseball career, helped win a World Series with the Chicago White Sox in 2005, and now a manager in the minor leagues in the Kansas City Royals system. Uh, First of all, Chris, thanks for the time. Uh, Glad to be here. Congratulations, manager of the year this past year. You led the Quad Cities River Bandits to a a league title. Uh, How much fun was this season just to get back to action after minor leagues were shelved because of the pandemic and to have that type of success, you know, and I'm sure there were a lot of variables with the pandemic and everything. Uh, how much fun and how rewarding was the 2021 season? Well, it was a lot of fun. It was number one. It was fun just to get back to work. Um, you know, and so we go back to 2021 in March, I think it was, we had two weeks, two and a half weeks of spring training and then everything shut down. They had trouble getting us home because there was flights shutting down. Arizona was different than New Jersey. I come home to New Jersey and it's a total quarantine and stores are closing and, and you know, the whole thing. So just to be able to get back and to be with your guys and to get back doing what you like to do. And, and then on top of that, because we were in Iowa, Iowa was totally open. So as soon as our season started, we have fans in the stands. Um, there were some teams in certain States that were very limited, you know, 1500 people, whatever we were, we were, almost sold out to get back. So it was, it was fun. And then on top of it, a great group of guys, great organization team goes on to win, having a great year. So everything, everything fell into place. And after last year being stuck at home and going through what everybody's going through across the country, uh, it was nice to be out and be, you know, semi-normal again anyway. And you'll be moving up to double A. I think you said Northwest Arkansas uh, for the 2022 season. Yes. Yeah. They just announced it the other day and um, I'll be taking the the core group of my guys who are also moving up to double A. I'll have a lot of those guys back and a little bit of the same staff I had last year too will go up with me. So uh, it'll be, it'll be fun because like I said, it's, it's a great group of guys, the players I had, the attitudes they had, the work ethic. I mean, it makes, it makes managing easy when you have a group of guys like that. Was managing always something managing slash coaching you always kind of figured would be in the in play for you even when you were younger and playing did you always kind of think or was it something that once the playing days were over you knew you wanted to stay connected to the game and and this was the path well I knew I like coaching uh you know I coached my son since he was in t-ball as much as I could coming up Uh, I coached in high school basketball at Pennsville as a volunteer for 12 years I think I'd been into our wrestling room working with those guys i helped out with our baseball program at high school level and was an assistant and an official assistant for a year. You know, I worked at uh, Salem community college with a friend of mine who took over that program. So I've always done it. I always liked it. I always liked teaching the game. Um, I I just, I didn't know that I was going to be a minor league manager. Uh, I knew I wanted to stay connected, but it was something that worked out. you know, there are our bosses in, in Kansas City from Dayton Moore, who is now the president of, of baseball operations there, to J.J. Piccolo, who is our, our GM. 
uh, we all went to college together. So, uh, you know, JJ is from actually from Cherry Hill. So I actually played baseball against him in high school. Uh, so that that connection was there. I think that everything just kind of fell into place. I loved coaching, um, but didn't know I'd be a minor league manager. I never really thought that far ahead. So let's go back to kind of your origin story with baseball. Uh, were you a baseball all the time kid growing up or were you playing whatever was in the neighborhood and whatever was in season? Whatever was in season, one sport to the next. Um, I was lucky that, that my, my dad didn't force it on me there, but he said, listen, if you're playing baseball, you're playing baseball. If you're going to go play soccer, you're going to play soccer. We're not going to be splitting from one sport to the next. If you're, if you're going to sell out and, and you're going to be uh, involved in one sport, you're going to be all in that sport. And then that's, so that's what we did. It was, you know, soccer or it was, uh, yeah, soccer to wrestling, to baseball, to, you know, year round. And then luckily my son fell into that too, did the same thing. Was baseball your favorite growing up? Like if you had to pick one, would it have been baseball, you know, during those no. elementary junior high years now? No, it would have been basketball. And I never even played basketball because I wasn't good enough at it. But that's that's what I love to do. I love playing. You know, we played with the kids in the neighborhood. We were always playing basketball. You know, we go from wiffle ball to basketball to jumping in the pool to, you know, doing the way things used to be. And um, I just wasn't good enough at basketball. Uh, and wrestling was actually my best sport. Um, baseball was just what ended up being my best sport in, in, in the long run, I guess. When did it start to crystallize for you that baseball was going to be a path for you? It was always a dream. Uh, my mom, before she passed, I'll tell everybody that when I was six years old, that I told her that I was going to buy a red Corvette when I made the major leagues. Uh, that never happened. <laughs> But uh, it was something that I kind of always dreamed of because that's what you see on TV. Um, you know, I wasn't going to be a professional wrestler kind of thing. And so my dream always was to become uh, a professional baseball player. I don't think I ever realized it was it was going to happen until probably going into my junior year of, of college because I wasn't highly recruited. I wasn't uh, the best player in the state. I wasn't known across the country. So it just the progression happened and I happened to play well enough at the right time for some people to see me. You were mainly a catcher in the big leagues. Were you always a catcher growing up or did you kind of move around? Off and on. But again, I think that starts with my dad. He's, he said, you're going to learn how to play all the positions. Uh, he knew that my best position was catching and, but I was too lazy to be an everyday catcher. I didn't want to do the catching because the catching wasn't fun. You know, the pitchers are the ones that had the fun and the outfit, you know, so I did everything but catch every day. I, I had always done it a little bit. And then finally, my junior year of high school, uh, Ed Rigger, a longtime coach here at, at Pennsville, uh, told me that if you wanted a chance to play in college, that you need to switch over and be a full-time catcher. And so that's when it happened. How did that go down with you? I mean, obviously you like the opportunity, but catching's hard. It's, it, it's, I mean, not for nothing. The equipment itself is just a pain inning after inning after inning. So when you see that as the path, you know, how'd that sit with you? I, I, my dad had been saying it for a long time that that's where I should have been. Um, but you know, your, your parents don't know anything when you're growing up. So, uh, I didn't, I, I kind of resisted a little bit. And again, because outfield pitching first base, they were easy compared to catching. Uh, when I finally made the decision, when I heard that from Mr. Rigger and also from, uh, coach Strawn, who, who took over for him then, uh, it started to make sense. Um, you know, I didn't hit for a lot of power coming up early in my high school career. I, I wasn't that fast. So 
if you take those things out of the equation, you're not that fast. You're not going to play the outfield and you don't hit for a lot of power. You're not going to play first base. I could throw. That was definitely one thing that had developed for me. And I was athletic for a catcher. So once I started to do it, I, I grew into it and, and it was an easy transition. What was your favorite part of catching as you, during those formative years, you know, late high school, college, what came to be the, the part you really loved about the position? Being in control of the game, um, being a part of the game on every pitch, uh, working with the pitchers. And, and I, I got, I probably got as much satisfaction out of catching a shutout as I did hitting home runs or getting hits because uh, it was a lot of fun. And especially when your pitcher came off the field and he appreciated what you did for him and you worked really well and you had a good, so that part of it is is what I liked. Uh, You know, baseball is a boring sport by nature. You know, there's a lot of standing around. Um, And the more I caught, the more I thought, man, this is a lot better than standing in the outfield, maybe not even having a play, but every two or three innings. Uh, and just being in control of the game, controlling the pace of the game, working with the umpires, trying to get extra strikes, um, all the little things of the game that that people, I guess, probably don't pay attention to much. Uh, that was the part I liked the most. You go to George Mason for college. You talked about not being highly recruited. How'd you end up heading down there? Uh, Coach Rigger called down. He knew a lot of people. He used to work at a, at a camp uh, down at Old Dominion. They used to have a huge summer baseball camp for high school kids. And he knew coaches from all over the country. Well, he knew George Mason was going to need a catcher because their catcher just got drafted. Um, and he basically called in a favor. He said, this is Ed Rigger. You know, well, so they sent somebody up to watch me. And I think it was three innings. We got rained out. And the coach went back. And I didn't hear this until years later um that they were sitting in the office talking and they didn't want me they wanted another catcher from North Jersey to come in um and one of the coaches talked them into taking me and they only saw me play three innings and the only reason I know that story is because Dayton Moore told that to me a couple years ago because he was one of the he was one of the coaches on the team he was a graduate assistant that year so uh I think he was making fun of me though telling me that we didn't really want you to begin with but I can't remember who the coach was at the time uh talked him into taking me so what is uh, the transition to college like? Was it easy? And, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on baseball, but overall, you know, it is difficult being a Division One athlete. So how was juggling everything and just getting used to playing Division One baseball? I think for me, it, it wasn't bad. George Mason's only two hours away in, in Fairfax, Virginia. So that, that part of it, I was close enough to home to where my parents could still come down and see me and play the games. Uh it was, I guess you would say, a little bit easier going to George Mason because we had, I think, five freshmen starting my my freshman year. Uh, I was playing every day right away. Uh, the coach had, the, once we started the fall and got through it, he had the confidence in me to let me call my own game. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. We started out 0-9 my freshman year, but I think there was enough of us in my position being freshmen at school, starting for a Division One program, not a powerhouse, but a, a mid-major uh, that that part of the transition was easy. And there was enough of us playing every day that we're going through the same things, but, you know, going to study hall twice a week and trying to get my, keep my grades up and not being the best student and doing things last minute and pulling all nighters and going on the probation list because I didn't get my grades, my, my first spring semester, or, you know, I did in the fall, but then in the spring with baseball. So that part of it was, was the hardest forget, you know, I forgot that when you're going there, you're not going to play baseball. You actually have to go to class and do your work and that kind of stuff. So it took me a year to figure that out. 
you talk about being able to call your own game. What's the learning curve on developing that skill? When to call a pitch, you know, when to go out to a mound and, and talk to a guy, you know, how to, how to set up a hitter and stuff like that. It seems to me as someone who followed baseball's entire life, that's a steep learning curve to really get that skill down. Well, the kids, I say kids, they're not kids, but the guy, the guys coming out of college now and, and especially the high school guys, but most of the college guys have no idea how to call a game now and it's not their fault. You know, so all ever since little league, you know, they got the wristbands now where the coach is calling out a number and that's the play and that's the pitch you're throwing and everybody's looking at the wristband and doing so they don't think for themselves. You know, they're just going out. Why did you call that pitch? Well, I called that pitch because that's the sign the coach gave me. Uh, they don't they don't know why they're calling. And so as, as these guys get into pro ball and now they're expected to call their own game. And not only that, they might have an eight million dollar bonus pitcher on the mound. And that catcher's job is to make sure that 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 prize possession is getting to where he needs to go, but they don't know how to call the game. And so you're constantly having to, in between innings, talk to them, listen, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is why you have to help them out. And so the learning curve is so much steeper for these guys coming up now because it's something they've never done. Again, I was lucky. I went to my freshman year and, and our head coach, who was actually still down there, Bill Brown, he, he had been a catcher in college. He went to a year at Georgia, and then he was a coach, uh, went right into George Mason. Uh, and then we had two pitching coaches who were former professional players call the game. And then in between innings, I might get I might get railed a little bit for, for calling the wrong pitch in the wrong situation. But I learned how to do it from my freshman year because I had to. Um, and so the, these poor guys coming up now who are getting thrust into pro bowl, not only are they having to do all these other things that we never had to do, well, now, you, oh, by the way, you got to learn how to call a game because you've never done it. It's just the way it is. Yeah, but as an aside, it seems to me that kind of takes away from the game and and from development. Like you're, it, it's a skill set that should already be in place. That now they have to spend time learning on the fly at the highest level. It doesn't. It, it seems counterintuitive almost, but I know it's everybody's working for their own ends from the younger levels to high school to college. Uh, but for the actual players, to your point, it, it seems like it, it puts them at a real disadvantage. Yeah. There's so much more going on for them than we ever had. I mean, we have nutrition coaches and, you know, performance science coaches in the analytics department and these poor guys are coming up and they're trying to physically get better as they're growing and they're trying to figure out their swing and they're trying to figure out the delivery on the mound and their footwork at shortstop and they're doing all these things. And then on top of it, oh, by the way, we got to teach you the mental part of the game because you never learned it before. So that's where it's today's players is leaps and bounds physically above what my generation was. But as far as the mental part of how you play in certain situations and knowing your situations, they're behind and it's not their fault. It's, it's just the way it's being taught growing up. And I guess you can say it's old school or, or whatever, but there is a, a reason why baseball was always America's pastime. I believe is because you, you had those certain things that didn't change and it's changed so fast now. And these guys are having to learn it. that I think that at times it's overwhelming. I think you mentioned it wasn't until your junior year till you really saw pro baseball as a legit possibility was it an aha moment was it a conversation or a scout 
approaches you and you it starts to really register or was it just kind of gradual where you started getting more and more attention that it made pro baseball just the next logical step well I think it was always a dream and it was always something I wanted to do and it was always something you tell yourself you think you can do but I I think I was always pretty honest with myself knowing that I went to Pennsville pretty darn good baseball program but a little school in South Jersey you know and then I went to George Mason which was a pretty darn good baseball program, but a mid-major on the East Coast, cold weather. And, you know, you're not, you're not playing Florida State and Florida and Cal Berkeley and all those. So I think I kind of kept it into perspective. Like I thought I could play with all those other guys, but you don't know until you do. And then I got, luckily I got an invite to play in the Cape Cod League. At the time was, there was Cape Cod League and, and the Alaska League were the premier, you know, summer baseball. And I got a chance to play up there and I did really well. And I think that was, that was my aha moment. Like, Oh, I can, you know, that picture was from the number one from Auburn and I had a chance, you know, I felt like I was, you know, and then, and then we went to the regional my junior year and played against Texas A&M and Cal Berkeley. And uh, I can't remember. I don't know if Florida was in it or not. We didn't play against Florida, but, and, and I did really well in the regional. So I think before my junior year, it was a dream, but it wasn't something that I don't think that, should have been realistic for me because I had never proven I could do against anything against anybody of, of, of that caliber. You mentioned the regional, when you think of your time at George Mason overall, what are the memories that come flooding back? The guys I played with, um, you know, I, I think that's probably the, the most fun that I had in baseball because it was a time you're, you're playing baseball. That's all it was. It wasn't, playing for a contract. It wasn't playing not to get released. And, you know, and like I said, we had, you know, five freshmen playing. I think we had three or four sophomores. So we had some guys that played together for three and four years together down there. Um, And now we think back and, and every time we get together. So there's six of us from George Mason that are with the Kansas city Royals now, including the top two spots. And whenever we get together and you have a drink, we don't talk about, minor leagues playing here or coaching here we talk about the George Mason days and and that kind of stuff so a lot of fond memories and it was just playing baseball and having fun and and being there with your guys you end up getting drafted in the third round in 92 by Seattle uh did you have a good feeling the Mariners were really interested were you surprised when they were the ones that that pulled the trigger yeah never talked to them (laughs) never once uh you know, I had noticed my junior year, there was a lot more scouts coming around, but we, we had some good players on our team. Like I said, that year, we were, we were a really good, a good team. So they weren't just watching me. They were watching other people on the team. And not one time did I ever talk to anybody from Seattle. I remember getting the phone call that day. Cause uh, you know, it was before cell phones and everything. And I'm out in the yard during draft day. And they used to have three days of draft. I think it was 58 rounds or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was June 1st, 2nd, 3rd or whatever it was. So I was just out playing catch with football with some friends of mine in the yard. And my dad called me and uh, called me inside and said that phone call. And I had no idea because I didn't think I was going to get taken on the first day. I figured probably from the 10th to the 20th round or something. And the guy said to me, he said, what do you think about uh, the Pacific Northwest? And I said, I had no idea what he's talking about. And he said, it's the Seattle Mariners. And it was a shock because I had talked to the Pittsburgh Pirates a lot. Um can't remember there was one other team that we talked to a lot but it's one of those things you just don't know how long did it take to seem real 
I don't think it seemed real until probably the plane landed late. I can't remember what time it was in Arizona and walking off, walking off the plane. And I think it was 95 degrees or something uh, because this is, you know, end of June. Um, and with another guy from the university of Delaware who got drafted by Seattle the same year. And then we actually looked at each other and said, are you kidding me? We're actually going to get the chance to play pro ball. Uh, I remember we walked, we were walking down the stairs because it was, uh, you didn't walk through a jetway. You walked down the stairs off the plane down onto the tarmac. And I remember saying that, and I think that was the moment that I'm like, Oh my God, now I'm on my own. I'm away from home. I'm, I'm ready to go play pro ball. So what is the transition like from college to pro baseball? Was it, uh, was it relatively smooth? Was it a moment where you almost slapped you in the face, the, the jump up in, in talent you were surrounded by and talent you were playing? What was the transition like? Oh, the, the, the talent. Yeah. Uh, leaps and bounds above what I was used to, uh, you know, in college, even when you're playing the big schools, you have one or two guys per team that like pitchers that are like, you're going, wow. Well, we had six in my draft class as we're working out and I'm going, that guy could have been the number one at Florida. That guy could have been, you know what I mean? So that it, it was, that part of it was, it was, uh, that was the biggest learning curve and trying to, the game just sped up and everybody was athletic and there was no, um, you know, usually you, even in college on the good teams, you have your, you know, seven, eight, nine hitters, which are so-so, you know, well, you didn't have that in pro ball anymore. You had nine guys you could hit and guys, everybody in the field could, could play. So um, everybody ran faster. It seemed like, uh, but then it was like anything else. You get used to it after a while and then it became, okay, the, I deserve to be here and let's just get down to work and, and see how we can do. Uh, a tougher transition offensively at the plate or defensively uh, catching? Uh, offensively. Um, just because, you know, in college at the time, you got into a fastball count. Most of the times you're going to get a fastball. Um, you get to pro ball and all of a sudden they're throwing you, you know, want to know not just change-ups, but curveballs and sliders. And like, wait a minute, like <laughs> this is where I was – I was, I was making hay when I was in college, I was getting a guy in a hitter's count and, you know, here comes a fastball down the middle and, or, you know, you get in a hitter's count and all of a sudden this pitcher is making a two Oh fastball and he's throwing it on the corner instead of throwing it right down the middle, just trying to throw a strike. Definitely the biggest, the biggest change for me was to to figure that part out. And it, t- it took a while. Did you feel pressure being a third round pick? That's pretty high. I mean, I don't know if when you're that young, you're not thinking in, in the terms of, you know, oh, well, I was third round pick. But did you feel any pressure the, the, as a as a high pick like that that you had to produce? I didn't. Um, I, I didn't feel the pressure to have to do well in the field. I think I put pressure on myself just because I wanted to do well. Um Seattle was a really good organization at the time and the coaching staff who there's people that I still talk to today that I had coaches in, in the minor leagues. They didn't put that kind of pressure on you. It, it, it wasn't, you have to get a hit. It, it was about approach. It was about how did you go about, did you have a good at bat? Did you, you know, and so they didn't put a whole lot of stock into just flat out numbers. Um, but I, I, I did okay too. So it wasn't, it wasn't that big, but we had a whole group of guys coming up together. So it was the same way with George Mason. I mean, we had from a ball into triple a, there was six or seven of us that moved all up together. Um, 
which also makes it easy. That familiarity with, with being with guys that you're comfortable with, that you know well, and that you trust. And it's time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with former big leaguer and Pennsville, New Jersey native Chris Widger right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest today is former Major League catcher Chris Widger, a Pennsville, New Jersey native. What was your favorite place? Because the minor leagues can take you to some small places, some odd places. And I don't mean odd in a bad way, but places you'd probably never go of your own accord. What was the the neatest minor league experience you had? I I went to so many places. Um, I I don't know the the neatest. um, Everyone had its own thing. I mean, every everyone was was kind of because you have so many minor leagues that, that. they have to make it unique and they want to have a unique experience for their fans. So I, I shoot my first year in Bellingham, uh, Washington, short season, a ball, our stadium wasn't even connected to a locker room. Like you had to dress at a football stadium, walk across the parking lot, walk through the fans, through the stands to get into your dugout because there was no underground dugout. There was no going out. It was all concrete things. So like there, there's, there's so many of them. I remember being in Columbus and they would, you know, they had to, Columbus Clippers ring your bell this stupid song that I don't want to say stupid but stupid song for a <laughs> but th- then you keep hearing it every time you hit a home run or something happens and to this day I can still hear that jingle in my head um just because it's it's one of those things that you that you see coming up uh but I mean I played in I don't know what 20 different minor league teams or something like that because at the end of my career I was doing half a year triple a and half a year in the big league so so many things, uh, but I'll never regret being in the minor leagues because the had a good time there and you're just hanging out with your guys and you're not playing for the money there either. You get uh, you spend about three years in the minors. You get called up in 95 uh, around June. Do you remember? I'm sure you do. When you get the call, what was that moment like and, and how do you remember it? I was in my apartment uh, just north of Tacoma, which is just south of Seattle. Uh, that's where AAA was there. So uh, got the phone call. I don't remember what time it was. It was late at night. Um, I think it was Woody Woodward that called. It was uh, He was the GM at the time and told me they had had an injury and, and uh, was getting called up to Seattle um, and that I needed to be at the ballpark at like 12 o'clock the next day to get all my gear. And um, remember getting off the phone. And just still, it, it honestly, it's, was that for real? Like, because this is what you've been dreaming about for so long. And, um, you know, coming from Pennsville, New Jersey, town of 12,000 people, um, got on the phone and called my mom and dad. And uh, I think my second phone call was calling my sister. Um, it was my brother-in-law was in the Navy. So she was, she was living across the country too. And then going, wow. And then all I had to do was jump in my truck and drive 45 minutes north because I was right there, um, just south of Seattle. Never forget it. What do you remember about your debut? Uh, I think it was against the Angels, uh, June 23rd of of 95. What do you remember about that day, that game? I remember um, Mark Langston was pitching and uh, pretty good left-hander at the time. And I remember getting a pitch and hitting it right on the nose, double to left center, except Garrett Anderson, who was also a rookie, ran it down in the gap. That's what, that's what I remember about that day. 
And I remember there was probably 12,000 people in the stands, 13,000 people because the kingdom wasn't drawing, the team wasn't great. And, um, but didn't matter to me. I, I had made it. I mean, that was my first at bat. I had made it. And, uh, but I can remember Garrett Anderson running it down in the gap too. You end up getting your first hit, I think, a week later uh, off of former Philly Kevin Gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, take me through that and what that feeling is like. Well, I'd like to say it was a bullet to right center field, but he threw a sinker in on my hands and I kind of fought it off and was, I'll, I won't say a complete blooper to right center field, but it wasn't hit very hard. Um, broke my bat, got my hit and, you know, they got the ball and they threw it in for me. And of course they play the whole thing. They wrote something stupid on the, on the ball and ended up crossing it out and it was all messed up. Well, it wasn't the real ball, you know, but I didn't know any better. I was just a rookie, you know, and whatever. Uh, but then I remember asking, I think it was Jay Buhner. I said, you think he would sign my bat for me? Cause I broke the bat and I figured maybe, and he did. He, uh, he wrote, uh, Chris, congratulations, Kevin Gross. And I still have the bat. It's out. It's not displayed. I don't have that stuff here, but it's all, it's out with my stuff up in the attic. So, uh, another thing you don't forget. How long did it take you to feel comfortable at the big league level? From a, you know, I belong here to I can play here because I think that, that you know, does it take a while or was it pretty? You know, you've worked hard, you've you've climbed the ladder, and you know what? How long does it take to feel comfortable? It took me a while. Um, I got called up because a guy named uh, Chad Cruder got hurt. He was a backup catcher. Um, he went on a fifteen day DL. They had the time, but you walk in the locker room there in Seattle and. And you're looking at Tim Belcher who has been around forever and Chris Bazio and Ken Griffey Jr. And Jay Buhner and Edgar Martinez and Tino Martinez. And I mean, you're going Joey Cora and you're going, you think you belong there, but then you start looking around the locker room and you just kind of, you just stay in your own lane and you, you go to your locker. And my locker was right next to Norm Charlton. And uh, first, after my first night, my first game, I, I went to leave, um, and in not these exact words, but he said, where the hell are you going? And uh, I said, I'm just going back to the hotel. He goes, pull up a seat. We're going to talk baseball for a while. And uh, he pulled out. He had a couple of drinks sitting there. He said, you don't have to drink, but you're not leaving right after the game. You're going to sit here for a half hour. We're going to talk a little baseball. Um, and so he did. And it, it wasn't about anything in particular. It wasn't anything about teaching. It was that was his way of being a leader saying, hey, this is why this is what you're getting paid for. And then I learned a lot sitting there in the locker room. I learned a lot of not, not of what not to do, but uh, I learned a lot of lessons about growing up in the game and, and treating the game with respect and, and uh, treating other people in the game with respect. So um, it was a learning experience for me, but it took a while. It, it probably took until my first full year in the big leagues in 97 till I felt comfortable. Like I belong there though. And that was with Montreal, correct? Yes. You get traded after a couple of years uh, in Seattle. Uh, and Montreal is where you play the most. You become an, an everyday guy. First of all, what is the – when you learn you're being traded, what was that like? Because I'm sure there's a an emotional connection to the Mariners organization because you said they were a good organization. You you'd been with them. They signed you, you'd done everything. How does that land with you? Just the idea of being traded regardless of where it was. 
Um, at the time, I was excited. Um, a little scared, I think. Scared, nervous, anxious uh, about going somewhere new. Newer, you know, after I'm just getting to learn everybody there. I'd been there for what four years, I guess, total. Um, so that that part of it, there's definitely an anxiety of of going to a new place. But it was exciting because Dan Wilson wasn't going anywhere. Dan Wilson, they had brought him over from Cincinnati. Lou Pinella had had him in Cincinnati. Dan Wilson was a great guy. Um, pitchers loved throwing to him. He was that guy that, I mean, that's who they wanted catching for him. And so there was really no place for me to go. Um, I had hit 300 in AAA. Um, I had hit for a little bit, started hitting for more power. And, and so I felt like it was time for me to see if I could play at the big leagues every day. And I remember being at a team party. I think we we're in Minnesota and everybody had had a couple drinks and, and, uh, Lou came up to me and, and he came to me and he said, why, why didn't you tell me, uh, that that was your, your backup job and that you deserved it because I had backed up in 95, but in 96, they sent me back to triple a and Tom Lampkin, um, was the catcher that became the backup. And I told him, and again, after a couple of drinks, I look back on it, probably <laughs> whatever, but, um, I said, uh, because I don't want to back up for you. I want to play every day. And then he said, son, you think you can play every day? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, you know what? I'm going to find you someplace to play every day. And I was traded two months later for uh, Jeff Facero. So I'll always, Lou was a tough manager, very tough. Didn't like catchers and didn't like young guys. And I was a 23 year old catcher, um, but I respected it. And then I ended up going back there and playing again the second time for him. And respected him a lot because he, he told you what he thought. If he told you, if he thought you were terrible, worst player he'd ever seen, he'll tell you, but he wasn't going to hold a grudge. He'd be there telling you, Hey, what's up next morning. So uh, a lot of respect for him for that. I can understand a guy like that. Not like a young players. What, what was the, the animus towards catchers? Is there, was there something there? Got every time a pitcher gave up a certain, a hit, a big hit, a home run, it was a catcher's fault for calling the wrong pitch. It's just the way. And I think Dan Wilson to this day, I don't know if he's a special assistant with Seattle still or not. I'll tell you the same thing. Um, that's just, that was Lou's way. Uh, he had, he was very, very old school. Um, and he had a certain way of doing things. And if you gave up a hit, it was on the wrong pitch. It didn't matter if it was the right pitch in the wrong location or whatever, he was going to jump to catcher. Um, and he, he was a, but he was a veteran's dream. He treated his veterans good and he trusted them, especially if you, if you worked hard and did your job. So Montreal, you become the number one guy. You spend about three plus seasons uh, as the starting catcher. What's the, you're also playing in Montreal as, as it turns out, baseball's on its way out from the city. What was, what was it like being an expo? You first get there, it's your chance to play every day. You don't care if there's five people in the stands. You're in the big leagues and you're getting a chance to play. Um, after a while, I think uh, it did get old losing. Um, but part of that was on us. We weren't playing good enough. You know, we can't blame everything on the ownership and everything. And the other thing was it, it got old having to talk about the team leaving uh, because that went on for, I mean, at least – two plus years of my time there was talk about new stadium or the team's leaving the team's getting relocated. Is the team going to stay Is it, you know, and so you're constantly answering questions from what media did go to the game. Uh, most of the time it wasn't about the game. It was about 
you know, are they going to pass this to be able to fund the stadium? Are they going to, what are you going to do? What do you, and it's at the end of the day, we didn't know. We were just playing baseball. We were young guys just trying to make a name for ourselves and, and, and do the best we can. One of the things being an expo, you're in the Phillies division. So you're playing the Phillies a lot. You're getting the chance to come to Philadelphia and play just as a whole. What was it like to be able to come to the vet and, and play baseball, what, 15 minutes from your house? It was nice. Uh, my, my son was born when we were in Philadelphia because we induced, because I happened to be here. Um, it's, I guess, from the house to the field was probably 30 minutes, I guess, from, from my front door here. Uh, and it was nice. It was sometimes tough because you have everybody asking for tickets, you know, and my dad would be giving me lists and then you got to go to other players because at the time you got six tickets free and then I'd be going to guy, anybody using their tickets tonight? And then I was having to, you know, so there was people you didn't even know that were asking for tickets to go to the game, you know, long lost friends from wherever. <laughs> Um, but to be able to see family and friends sleep in your own bed, go to the stadium that you grew up watching Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and Pete Rose and all the guys play in. I mean, that part of it was, was pretty cool. I had gotten to play at veteran stadium, the carpenter cup when I was in high school, but it's not the same, you know, with an empty stadium when you're in high school, as opposed to coming in with, you know, 20,000 people or whatever there and, and getting to play that part of it was, was pretty cool, but not nearly as cool as uh, doing my first post-game interview at veteran stadium and putting on the headphones in a dugout. They used to do it. I, there was a plug-in spot at the end and Harry Callis being the guy talking to, and that's the guy you listen to for, you know, your whole life growing up. And, and you hear a guy say, you know, Hey, Widge, how you doing? And you're going, wow, I've been listening to this guy since, I remember watching baseball and he's talking to me and calling my name. I think that was, that was probably one of the coolest things I have I, I had in professional baseball was that moment. And I'm curious, was that interview after I, my research showed you had one home run at the vet and it was a big one. I think it broke a tie in the seventh inning in 97 off of uh, Matt beach. Uh, it, are, is there a connection there? Was it that game? Do you remember? I don't remember if it was that game. I remember because I had a, no, that was in Montreal. I had a walk-off hit against Schilling. I didn't have many, so I remember which ones they were. <laughs> um, so it must have been that because I never hit the Phillies well. I didn't. Not only did I not hit in Veteran Stadium well, but I didn't hit the Phillies well at all. Uh, so it, there wasn't too many bright spots there. So that had to be the one uh, because I was the post-game guy. Do you remember that home run off Matt Beach? I do remember the home run. I don't remember the situation. Um, I do remember being happy because like I said, I didn't get many hits against them. And not only did I not get many hits, but there was a lot of strikeouts against the Phillies for some reason. Um, but uh, yeah. And uh, I hit lefties. Okay. So I had a chance against Matt beach, but um, the one thing I don't ever forget is going to the dugout and talking to Harry. I mean, that was, that was pretty cool. Time for another break on one-on-one. -on -one. We will have more with Chris Widger right after this. And we're back on one-on-one -on -one talking with Chris Widger, now a minor league manager, a former major league catcher, and a native of Pennsville, New Jersey. So you spent 10 years in the bigs and mentioned you win the World Series with the White Sox. Uh, how do you end up in Chicago? What's the, the road that leads you to becoming a White Sox? Uh, crazy road. It was a crazy road. Uh, I had gotten released... Last day of spring training, 
2002 with uh, New York, with the Yankees. I had backed up Posada the year before. I had come off of two shoulder surgeries. My sister passed away in 2001. I missed the whole year, just a, a terrible year. And so I came back and made it back up. I got called up uh, about midway, I think. Uh, ended up doing pretty well, signed a guaranteed contract. It get released the last day of spring training, 2003, 2002, excuse me, with the Yankees. Um, signed not much later um, with St. Louis Cardinals. I do the same thing. I go to AAA. They got to call me up by a certain date. I end up being called up and I play the rest of the year and did really well. I backed up Mike Matheny. I uh, was really happy there. Signed a guaranteed contract. It soon it became a free agent a month later. So it was good to go. I was coming back as the backup. Got released in 04, last day of spring training again. Well, you got to clear waivers and do all kinds of stuff. I was so upset and pissed off that I ended up going home and telling my agent, I said, don't, I don't, don't take any calls. I'm done. I'm not playing anymore. I'm going to go play softball. Um, I didn't want to be the bitter guy in AAA somewhere. So I figured I'd just go home. So I came back here to Pennsville and me and my buddies had a fast pitch softball team and we're playing fast pitch softball. And then about halfway through the year, I said, you know what, maybe I'll try to play with the river sharks. That's when I went up there. That wasn't until August, maybe maybe a little, maybe July. And uh, just decided I wanted to do it for fun. So I was playing softball and then whenever I could, but we made the playoffs there with the, with the river sharks too. We had a good team. So I figured, you know what, I'll try one more year. And we come to 05 after deciding in 04, I'm done. I'm done playing. I didn't want to go out like that. And so we started calling around and Chicago invited me to spring training and Ozzy and Joey Cora and those guys liked what I did in spring training. I ended up making the team and getting another, what, two years in the major leagues and a World Series out of it. So I know that that was a long roundabout way, but there was a lot of things leading up to the reason I was out of baseball in 04 when I was perfectly healthy, but um, I've grown up since then too. I don't hold grudges anymore. (laughs) Before we talk about the World Series year though, you mentioned Camden and how, you know, I, we talked about this before we got on the air. I really enjoyed the Camden River Sharks. I think the Atlantic League at that time was better baseball than it was given credit for. Uh, What was the experience overall? You had success and it obviously helped get you back uh, into the big leagues. Uh, But what was the, the experience in the clubhouse with the fans, stuff like that? What was it like? What most people don't know, you go to Lancaster or you go to York, Pennsylvania, or uh, Sugarland, Texas, who, who also had a team, Southern Maryland had a team. They drew fans. I mean, you're talking 3,000, 3,500 fans a night in a, in a place that's comparable to a AAA stadium. I mean, these, these places are nice, and the baseball is very good. What, what you don't have is pitchers throwing 96, 97 in those leagues because those pitchers still have jobs somewhere. But you have guys that can hit. You have guys that can run. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. And for me, it was a, it was a really good reset button. Um, I went out and, and played and enjoyed myself and just say, you know what? I'm just going to play. I'm not going to worry about getting released. I'm not going to worry about my shoulder hurting. I'm not going to worry about my numbers and all that other stuff because I'd already decided that I didn't care if I went back to the big leagues or not. And I had a lot of fun. The stadiums were fine for me. The, I didn't mind the travel, the travel shoot. Travel was easy at the time. There was eight teams all around around this area. Um, 
really, really good experience for me. And, and one of the main reasons that I made it back to the big leagues was because of what I did there as far as numbers. But the second thing is, is just being able to enjoy the game again and play and have fun. So 2005, you, you make the white Sox to back up during, as that year's progressing, you obviously know you guys are really good. Was there a moment when you're like, we're, we're more than good. We've, got something special here and this i'm really anxious to see where this ends was there a moment that that it all crystallized like that i think somewhere around the all-star break i think at the beginning we knew we had good players on the team i mean i was just a backup but you you had guys jermaine die and carl Everett. these guys had put up big numbers before but you're also talking almost the time you had a bunch of guys pulled off the scrap heap like they were pulled from so many different places you know guys who you know, there was no real big free agent signings. It's not like they went out and spent big money to bring people in. They took guys that were were maybe fringe guys, maybe guys that were towards the end of their career that weren't putting up the numbers that they used to. And for some reason, things in the in the clubhouse just gelled. I mean, all those different parts were put together. Um, but at the beginning, even though you play well at the beginning, you don't look at your team and you go, "Wow, we can we can get to the World Series," because you're you're looking at some of the other teams and a stacked lineups, and you're going. Well, we know we don't have that, but at the same time, our starting pitching kept, kept throwing six, seven, eight innings a game out there. And then Bobby Jinx gets called up and all of a sudden we got the closer that we didn't have at the beginning of the year, but you don't expect a, a 23 year old that's been through his own Rocky path, you know, with the angels before that to come up and do what he did either. So all the stars aligned, but I don't think we saw them aligning until probably about the all-star break. And after we had about, 70 or 80 games and thinking that like, you know what? We can beat anybody and we should beat anybody. How much fun September and October? <laughs> um, at that age for me, um, the regular season was just something you got through to get to that point because that's how much fun it is. Uh, no matter how good your team is, you're going to be playing Tuesday, Wednesday night games in front of, you know, 20,000 people or 15,000. You get to the playoffs and you have, at that time, Yankee Stadium had set almost 60,000. Uh, it's almost like a, a football atmosphere where the, just people are going crazy. Uh, it's a whole different experience. I mean, it's a lot of fun and something at the end. Once, once you experience it one time, the whole season, that's what you look forward to is getting to that to that time of the year because it's, it, it's so much fun and um, so easy to, to go to the ballpark. And you had – if I'm not mistaken, your rookie year, you'd go into the playoffs with Seattle, you know, and then it's 10 years until you're back. Does it make it hit differently? You know, when you've gotten that taste of it that young and then it takes that long to get back. Now, I don't want to say you didn't appreciate the first time, but uh, when, when you experience how hard it is and you mentioned you leave the game and, and everything you went through, I can only imagine the, the level of satisfaction that must be to be a part of a team that does what those White Sox did in 95 in 2005. It's it's yeah, because of me personally, where I had been and the journey I took to get there and then to have everything so magical come back and to have a year where the Chicago White Sox hadn't won in 88 years and you have people coming up to the ballpark and they're in their 70s and 80 year old, 80 70s and 80s and they're coming up saying I've been waiting my whole life for this and thank you and tears in their eyes kind of stuff and 
And you're looking at that and you're going, we had, we had a part of that. And you, and you get to see the fans coming out to the field. I mean, it was very special uh, for me personally because of my journey, but just because of the way Chicago transformed. Uh, it went from all Cubs, you know, Cubs every day. And, oh, by the way, the White Sox are over on the south side too, to all of a sudden the papers, TV, it was, it was about the White Sox. And um, it was a pretty neat thing to see because Seattle was the same way in 95. Um, the team was moving. The team was done. They, the resolution had got, had failed in, in the legislature out there and, and they were done. And then all of a sudden we started winning we started winning and the fans said, you know, we want a new stadium and had never won there either. Um, it was the first championship they had ever won. And so uh, division championship. So a lot of similarities between the two, and I was lucky enough to be there for both of them. You played one game in the World Series, and first it was a four-game sweep. You guys just buzzed through uh, an excellent Houston team. Uh, and if I'm not – I think the game three you play, and you come in in a double switch in the ninth inning. What does that feel like to be come into a game of that magnitude cold – in a situation where the game is tied, every pitch is magnified. Was it difficult to, to get up, not to get up, obviously you're excited, but I mean, that's just such a, a level of intensity and to kind of be dropped into it like that cold. Was that difficult? Believe it or not? No, that, that was easy. It was exciting at that point, but you got to remember I'm 35 years old as opposed to my, the first time I did that, I was 23, 24. So my rookie year, we're in New York and we're in the ninth inning and there's 60,000 people in Yankee Stadium and they call down to the bullpen and I'm going into the game because they're hitting for Dan Wilson and you're in New York doing it. So yes, World Series, bigger stage, whatever, but you know, as a 23, 24 year old rookie having to do that you know, Norm Charlton's pitching, he's throwing fork balls in the dirt. And, you know, you know, you're going to look like an idiot if you let one go and they're going to, they're going to win the game. And that game went 15 innings. So it, I was lucky that I had already done that. Um, I did it in game five in 95, Randy Johnson came in the game um, and they had, they had hit for Dan Wilson and I came in the game and I'm there. I am catching Randy Johnson in front of 60,000 people at the kingdom. So the stage was probably actually bigger in Seattle just because of it was the New York Yankees and there were so many people there and I was so young and quite literally like just nervous and probably scared to go out there. And uh, in the World Series, the stage was bigger, but I think I enjoyed it more. I think I was more confident in myself. I was more comfortable. And I think that I knew that my teammates trusted me to go out there and, and do the job. So uh it was easier actually at that point. And I think it went 14 innings and you ended up knocking in an insurance run. You got, uh, was it Jermaine die that homered earlier in the inning? Oh, uh, that game. They all run together at this point. Um, Jermaine die pod hit one, but that was the game before. Um, or was that a Jeff Blum? That was a Jeff Blum home run game. Wasn't it? I'm not, I don't. I yeah. Don't, yeah, but, I should remember that stuff, right? I, all I did was take four balls and walk. Wait, you got a bases loaded walk. What? I mean, what's that? I mean, you know, that's you're knocking in a run in a World Series game. Well, at the time, I had more World Series uh, RBIs than Alex Rodriguez. I think my son told me at the time, so it was going pretty good, <laughs> even though I never put a ball in play. 
<laughs> so what's the moment when you guys win it? What's that that elation like when you win game four and you not just won, but you've swept the World Series? It it was kind of, it was the everybody uses surreal and all that stuff. It, it, you, you're just going crazy because it, it seemed like it happened so easy. Like we we swept the first series and then we won four out of five and then we swept and then everything goes through and our starting pitching at four complete games in a row. And uh, it's just, and then you think we're the best, like there's nobody for a year. We get to say nobody is better than we are. And when you look at the collection of guys we had signed from different teams and guys who weren't big names and playing in a, in a market where you were the, you know, the, the second best team because you had the Cubs. I mean, it was just, I think just a culmination of just everybody kind of went crazy and said, we finally did it. And it's something nobody can ever take away. You want, you want a world championship and you get, you get the ring for it. And no matter what, no matter how good your career is, you get defined by that. And that's the one most thing. The thing that people ask me the most is they ask about that year, not about playing 10 years in the big leagues, not about my first hit. It's either, that World Series, or what was it like catching Randy Johnson? That's that's like the two things that people ask. What was it like catching Randy Johnson? By the way, yeah, it's just <laughs> nobody nobody in our in our era pitched the way he did. I mean, six ten throwing a hundred miles an hour, two pitches here it comes. You know, it just and what people don't realize is what good a control he had when he was winning all those Cy Youngs. I mean, he was pretty good, but. He, he was intense, so you had to learn how to catch him. But, it's again, it's one of those things that, that uh, you get defined by, you know. Back in the day, you know, people, didn't matter how good you were, you get defined by, did you catch Roger Clemens or, you know, even even before that. So, uh, and that's fine because I had a chance to do it. Was John, was he the most challenging guy to catch? Who was the most challenging guy to catch through your, throughout your career? Ooh. Just because of their stuff and – what you had to do to, to, to maintain it. I would say probably Jeff Juden with Montreal. Really? Jeff, Jeff Juden was six, 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 seven. I don't know. Former Philly. 250, 260, threw hard, um, but did a lot of weird things. Sometimes the ball would, would, would two seam and run. Other times it would cut. Sometimes he would paint a quarter. Other times he'd hit the guy in the head. Sometimes the slider was really good. Sometimes it went the wrong way, you know, and he was just different, uh, not different in a bad way, but just as a catcher, very, you never felt comfortable catching because you didn't know what was coming or how it was coming and everything was so different. So that was, that was probably my toughest. So you win the series in 2005, 2006 is your last year in the big leagues. Do you, when it was time to hang it up, were you comfortable with it? Was it, situation where the phone wasn't ringing where you just at the end of the line physically where you just wanted to get out kind of how did you how did you take the exit ramp kind of faded out uh just left and told my agent that I was done um I ended up in Baltimore in the big leagues so so my last game was in the big leagues of Baltimore but I had had some some neck issues with a bulging disc in my neck. So I kind of missed the last couple of weeks of the year. And I just gotten re- released by the white Sox in the middle of the year. And the next year I was going to have to go back to triple a with somebody again and prove that you're healthy and you know, whatever, and you can make it again. And I wasn't ready to do that. 15 years of being on the road. My kids were 
seven and eight at the time, something like that, six and seven at the time. And it was time for me to to come home. And for me, it was, it was really easy, believe it or not. People ask me all the time, do you miss playing? Not one little bit. Don't miss. I don't miss the travel. I don't miss getting on a plane and staying in a hotel. And um, I, I like being home. Um, and so I miss the guys, you, you miss the locker room and you miss that camaraderie that you have people that do what you do. Uh, but I didn't miss playing. I didn't miss my body hurting with, you know, the three shoulder surgeries I had, a knee surgery, uh, elbow surgery. Uh, so it was easy, believe it or not. Like I don't, not one time have I ever regretted walking away or, and people say, well, why did you retire? And I said, well, I don't know that I retired because retirement means there was a bunch of people that still wanted you to play. I don't know that there was anybody that still wanted me to play. So I told him I, I just stopped playing after 2006. We talked about, you know, with coaching was something you were thinking about what was kind of the door that got you into professional coaching. Do you remember the conversation or the phone call, uh, you know, kind of how it was broached and, and, and what, what got you in the door? Adam Lorber, who was the uh, GM at Camden at the time, um, he had gotten in contact with me about uh, possibly coming up there to either manage or be a bench coach, or just to come back. He knew I was a local guy. He knew I was done. Um, and I put it off for, for a year or two, because I was home with my kids and we were doing our thing and I was being a normal, you know, whatever. Uh, so we end up, uh, I end up calling him back and I went up there and met him and I actually became a pitching coach. That was my first job in professional baseball. Ron Karkovice was the manager. Um, they already had a hitting coach. Um, they didn't have the budget for four coaches and, and they wanted me to help out with a lot of things, but they had to name me something. Uh, and I like working with the pitchers. I mean, that's spent so many years working in a bullpen, being a backup guy anyway, working with the pitching coaches, uh, that that's the part of the game I like the best anyway. So it was a lot of fun. I did that for two years and, and then I managed for a year, uh, before the team moved. And it's interesting. I was just reading your son got drafted, a left-handed yeah. pitcher. Uh, yep. what, what is it like seeing his journey to a similar road that, that you that you took? Well, he, he didn't, his, his journey took him all over the place and you don't have enough time in the podcast <laughs> for me to go through what, what, what he's been through. Uh, he was a, he was a late developer and, uh, to try to make a long story short, uh, he was a skinny 6'1", 150-pound high school kid who knew how to play the game, was always intelligent the way he played the game, played it the right way, but physically wasn't as big and strong or as fast or threw as hard as most of the other kids. So when he got out of high school, uh, he ended up going um, to RCGC, which is Gloucester, Gloucester County College, RCSJ now, I guess it is. Um, and they gave him a chance to walk on, uh, and he made the team throwing – 78, 79 miles an hour, just a skinny lefty who knew how to pitch and became a pitcher only at the time. Well, he forgot to go to school. So he was ineligible for the spring. And then he was ineligible for the next year. So two and a half years later, he wants to give it one more shot. So he's 21 years old, going back to junior college, at which time he's grown five inches and put on 20 plus pounds. So now he's six, six. Well, he went through and became a um, junior college, all American, he was eight and with a one something ERA. And then some scouts started calling me, asking him about, it. I said, listen, I, I don't know where it came from. Like, this is, 
you're talking about ineligible for two years, been out of the game plan, and then draft day gets taken the 10th round. Uh, very, I mean, just worked his butt off to finally get himself eligible. Um, but just a, a strange, a great story, but a, but a strange story. And your son's name is, is CJ. And are there any, how oh, he's a, a pitcher. Are there any similarities in how you approach the game to him or are you kind of completely different players? There's some similarities. I think he shares um, because he's here. He's heard me harp on it for so long about, not worrying about velocity, not worrying about this and that, but worrying about getting people out. So he's a little bit old school in that, um, about keeping the game simple, about stop over uh, analyzing everything and, and oh, this pitch and that pitch in my delivery and just go out there. And, and at the end of the day, you have to play and, and actually enjoy what you're doing or there's no sense in doing it. And I think that part of it, he does. But now he has to learn all the other stuff that all the other kids grew up with, with the analytics and the all the things that I kind of, I wouldn't say kept him away from, but but just kind of let him enjoy the game a little bit instead of having to worry about all that stuff. He likes it, it, though. He, lo- he loves baseball. And baseball, the difference is he's always been – baseball's always been it for him. I mean, it's been his number one love, the thing that he's wanted to do, kind of an obsession kind of thing, um, where I wasn't that way. Is it difficult to look at him through the eyes of a father, but you're also a coach? Are you able to separate – the two I do, but it's difficult at times. It's uh, because he has his own coaches. Um, he he's with the Texas Rangers. He's uh, you know, those guys work with him every day. They're, they see him every day. Yes. I've seen him his whole life, but that's their job. Their job is to work with him. I'm not there. I don't see what they do and I'm not paying a salary. So he needs to do what they want him to do. And, and, and that's hard for me sometimes because I see certain things that I don't like or something that I know, or that I think I know will work better for him. Um, And then I need to step away and say, listen, he's 22 years old now and he can make his own decisions. Plus they have a job to do and, and they're pretty good at it. I mean, they're professional coaches. Chris Widger, this was so much fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Pennsville, New Jersey native Chris Widger for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show and you want to help us out and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.